Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Over the past 18 months, COVID has demonstrated the need for a well-funded health system. The cost of dealing with a pandemic has most clearly been borne by our hospitals. So how does the Australian healthcare system stack up comparatively? This week, I'm joined by Keys Van Gogh, Deputy Director and Professor at the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at UTS. He's been working on the ICONIC project, an international examination of the costs and outcomes of healthcare for different conditions around the world. Let's meet him now. Uh, my name is uh, Keys Van Gogh, and I'm a professor at the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation, the Faculty of Health at UTS. You've been working on what's called the ICONIC project. Now, that is a very catchy and very uh, pithy little acronym. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is the ICONIC project? What does ICONIC stand for in this context? Yes. Uh, so it's the International Collaborative on Costs, Outcomes and Needs in Care. It's a group collaboration of uh, 11 countries, uh, including Australia, and we're the Australian partner, but it includes uh, the US, New Zealand, uh, the UK, um, Canada, England, France, Germany, Netherlands, uh, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. What those 11 countries have done, uh, we started about three years ago, is we try to push, uh, I suppose, the frontier of international comparison work in the healthcare and health system performance fields. So tell us a little bit about what you've found so far then from this collaborative work. How does Australian yeah. healthcare stack up comparatively? We've been doing comparative analysis for for better part of 30 years already. But what Iconic does for the first time really is look at individual patients and sort of look at what happens to them in terms of their healthcare use, their costs, and in fact, their outcomes. And so what we've been able to do with Iconic is actually develop what we've called a patient persona. We have several of these. Uh, one is a person who's uh, had a hip fracture and has had a hip replacement. We identify those in, in our data, and then we follow them, uh, what happens to them in, in over the next 12 months. Similarly, we've got a patient with chronic heart failure and who also has diabetes. We pick them up, we identify them and follow them in our data. And so what that allows us to do is, is really have very strong uh, comparative power to compare like with like. Mm. All right. Every other sort of previous sort of analysis hasn't done that. It sort of has done. We spend this much on health compared to GDP mm. or, you know, we spend this much on hospitals or we use this many, many, uh, spend this much time in hospital, or use these many uh, GPs. But we've never been able to sort of compare like with like to sort of see, well, what if you see if same type of patients, how do these patients travel through the system? What is their journey? What's, what's their health system cost in this? Now, so we've done that and we've published uh, some papers and how does Australia compare is, is, is your question. 
not bad, <laughs> but it depends. <laughs> it always depends. So in terms of the hip fracture, but both in fact, both the hip fracture and the uh, person with chronic heart failure and diabetes, we tend to be high users of hospital systems, mm. right? Our patients tend to go into hospital more times. They don't stay there for very long, but they do go more often compared to many of the other, most of the other countries. Another aspect is a sort of common aspect is that we don't spend a lot on primary care. We, uh, so what so does that mean in terms of primary care? In, a, in the Australian sense, it's GP. Other countries have a stronger, a broader definition of, of primary care, but essentially we mean general practice in Australia with a little bit of nursing. Um, you know, occasionally you, when you go to a GP practice, you might actually also be seen by a practice nurse. That's also included, but by and large it's GP. And we don't spend a lot on GP. We only have a sort of average kind of volume of services uh, that go to the GP. But the price we pay for a GP consultation is actually relatively low to most other countries. That's probably not a surprise when, we can, when you compare us to the US. It's more surprising when you compare us to you know, countries like Spain or England, you know, that we are still quite, quite low. So that's, that's, that's the sort of health service use and cost picture. I must say, we also get really good outcomes. So the number of people who die uh, in 12 months after having a hip fracture is we are the lowest and low here wow. is good, <laughs> right? <laughs> the fewer, fewest people die. And so out of the 11, we, we do do the best. And so it's a really interesting uh, dilemma is, and one of the great strengths of this, of this study, if you just looked at the hospital side of things, you go, oh my goodness, we're spending too much. We should, we should reduce mm -hmm. how much. So, but at the other side, we're looking at outcomes. We're getting really good outcomes. So yes, there might be a case for, um, reducing hospital expenditure, but you don't want to let go of the good outcomes at the same time. We, we might be doing something quite well. And so it might be that going to hospital is a good thing in terms of, in terms of uh, producing better outcomes. We don't know that, but it certainly is, it provides policymakers with a fuller picture of what is happening. Yeah. And uh, again, it sounds like it's that separation from just the raw numbers, right? Uh, where exactly. previously we've looked at expenditure yeah. and, and you've looked at cost per patient as as how you determine how much is being spent. But by yeah. actually having that patient persona, it sounds as though you can basically plug and play. You can say, what's the experience of that person in Australia? What's the experience of that person, that average person exactly. in uh, the US? Exactly, exactly. And that's much, it, it provides for much stronger comparative analysis. And, and so is it just about breaking down those costs and outcomes? Where do you see this going forward? Like this is a preliminary yeah. early stuff. How do yeah. you see this expanding? At the moment, from the Australian perspective, we can do a lot better. So our contribution to the project was based on New South Wales data only. So Why we, was that? Uh, because of data limitation. So we, our group has access to the, the, the 45 and up data set, which is a New South Wales based data set, and it complies with all the sort of data that you need in order to be compatible with all the other countries that are uh, doing that. Now, I must say, we're not an outlier when it comes to just looking at a region. Uh, there are other countries who just look, three other countries who, who just look at a regional part of, for example, Spain. So not all the countries have national uh, 
data sets available to them, but we just didn't have access to that in the time available. If we were to repeat this story, you know, if we were to repeat the exercise, then I would try and, um, and move that beyond, beyond New South Wales. Mm. The other aspect where I think we can do a lot more is, in fact, create different patient personas. So, so far, we've only really looked at, um, at uh, hip fracture and chronic uh, heart failure. There are some countries who are also able to look at uh, some mental health personas. It would be great to do that, <laughs> but it'd be great to even go broader and look at, for example, people diagnosed with, with cancer and look at the costs and outcomes uh, there, because I know that there is a lot of variation uh, across uh, different, uh, different um, countries in terms of the cost and the outcomes with, uh, with cancer. There's already a lot of international work in that, but I think we can make a, a unique contribution to it. The other aspect that I think would be <laughs> fantastic to do is start to look at sort of access issues. Mm. And so whether there are problems with certain population groups, lower socioeconomic groups or certain ethnic groups, uh, indigenous groups who have higher problems or, or have greater barriers to access, which then might lead to worse health outcomes. Do you think there's much that can be learned from some of these other countries through this process as well? Are there certain other countries whose results you were able to look at and think this is something we should be emulating going forward? Look, at this level, all international comparisons should be sort of viewed with, with, with great care. What mm. it is, it's a signal. It's a signal that sort of says, look, you know, this country is doing well. Let's dig further and try and explain why they're doing well. Or in our case, why are we uh, reliant on hospitalization so much. Now, like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is worthwhile digging into that balance, whether we're getting that balance between primary care and hospital care correct, and whether you know some of that hospital care could be delivered in the, uh, in the primary care setting that we were not reliant. But of course, we don't want to let go of our good outcomes either. And so what it is, is, is these are little signals for us to sort of dig deeper and try and explain why we're actually seeing what we're seeing. Mm. One of the things you did mention was that the fees for GPs were particularly low in Australia, almost from, from the way you said it, it sounded like almost surprisingly low. What do you think mm. accounts for that or, or are you not sure? The, the GP market in Australia is pretty competitive. You know, about 85% of all services now are bulk built, which basically means that the GP is accepting whatever the government Medicare rebate is as full payment. Right. Now, they don't have to, right? Every GP is allowed to charge whatever they like. They choose to accept the level of payment that the government says is the right payment for, uh, for a GP consultation. And that's an indication of how, how competitive uh, GP land is. You don't get those sorts of bulk billing rates in other medical areas like specialist consultations, et cetera. There, the bulk billing rate is, is significantly lower. In other words, specialists choose to charge higher amounts, mm. higher than what the Medicare rebate uh, sets them. So we're, as a society, we're just very used to what Medicare has instilled, which is you go to the GP, it's bulk billed, there's less of a need to actually go to a specialist and less of a need to pay these private rates. Yeah, so so that is true. Like some, some GPs will um, take on a lot of the care uh, themselves rather than refer to specialists and might also be worried about the sort of out-of-pocket costs that patients face 
when they refer someone to a to a specialist. And so you go to a GP and you go for them for the health, but the, they might also be worried about the fact that their patient might not be able to afford mm. many consultations at a GP. So they might take on uh, that as well. Yeah. Mm. I want to move away from the iconic project to talk mm-hmm. more to the current context, because I'm sure as a um, someone who works in the field of health economics, it's been a big 18 months for you, or at least, uh, if nothing else, a very interesting 18 months. Yeah, uh, in the last two years, we've really seen the importance of the public health care system mm. come to the fore with COVID. Now, how has COVID, has COVID in any way rather changed how we fund hospitals or has it revealed something about how hospitals are currently funded in Australia? So there, yes, so, so there is a, a little bit of, uh, I suppose, in the background of the last few months, we've seen a little bit of sort of political uh, debate that is related to the way we, we fund uh, hospitals. And so the state premiers, uh, state and territory pre- uh, premiers and uh, uh, head of governments have been arguing with the federal government that the cost of providing hospital care has just gone up because of COVID. So even for things that are not COVID related, the costs have gone up because of all the personal protection, because of the additional staffing requirements, uh, because of the pressures in the system. Even if you're going in for a hip replacement, for example, the cost of, of doing that has, has gone up. And now what we, how we pay for uh, hospital care in this country changed in, in 2011. And so there's the Independent Hospital Pricing Authority, which sets the price for a hospitalization, right? It, it collects data from each of the states and territories. And uh, on the basis of that data determines what is the fair price, uh, the efficient price, I should say, for a hospitalization. Now, the problem with it is that, that that efficient price is usually based on data that is a few years old. It makes some adjustments, but typically that immediate cost that we've seen, that cost explosion due to COVID is not yet reflected mm. in the efficient price that uh, that IPA publishes. And so that's where the argument has, has come in. It's just that we haven't caught up yet to what's actually happening on the ground, the cost that is happening on the ground and the funding system, which in a couple of years' time will be starting to pay for the COVID. But of course, the premiers are, are dealing with, with a situation that is very current. Yeah, so by that method then say that you were to be hospitalized for COVID, say that you did end up in an ICU, potentially even ventilated, Mm. then the pricing for that is predicated on when less people were getting ventilated, when less people were entering the ICU. And as a result, it's more expensive to be Exactly. So so there's a there's stretch on resources which always bumps up the price, but also the cost of actually uh, delivering care. Like the fact that we've got social distancing, etc. Well that has an impact on on staffing numbers. That has an impact on where how you're going to uh, the, 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 the gowns, the cleaning, everything, every aspect of a hospital cost has gone up mm. because of because of putting all those uh, regulations and absolutely necessary regulations in place. But yet the price hasn't quite caught up yet. And, and in terms of the funding for COVID, I think back in February, it was agreed that it was going to be a 50-50 split between the states and the federal government for the cost of COVID and the federal government would pick up the cost for all the vaccines. In terms of funding public hospitals, though, it's not a 50-50 split, is it? Uh, Look, historically, I should say, historically, it it has hovered around that 50-50 
uh, split. Mm. Um, but right now, since 2011, and then some, there have been some subsequent changes, the federal government has essentially agreed to fund the additional growth in the system. And so the additional growth is 45%, that's the agreement. But of course, that's just the growth in the system. It doesn't take account of what happened beforehand. With the states that were most hit by COVID, New South Wales was putting in an average of about $282 million per month up until October. Mm. Going forward, it seems as though we're going to see less hospitalizations. It seems as though, obviously touch wood, is this going to have a long tail in terms of the funding aspects? Yes. So just coming back to your to the, to the New South Wales contribution, is, is that's mm. the way that the system is kind of operated, which is that the the, gov- the federal government has sort of agreed what it puts into, but there are caps to it. That's why I say it's you know limited to the right. growth in or whatever. But there are very strict definitions. But of course, hospital costs can go up, and you don't have perfect control over that because it's a demand-driven system. So if if more people turn up, then you have to look after those people, right? And so even though the federal government sort of puts in hard boundaries of what it contributes. If the costs go up beyond that, then the state governments have to pick up those taps. They they are there to because they are the owners. They are they are the they are the managers of the public hospital system, and so they end up picking up the uh, the, the sort of excess uh, in that uh, in that way. Right. So now, it gets to a level, and then as we've probably seen over COVID, it's gone beyond that set level, yeah. and the states have to carry that weight. They, exactly, they carry that weight, and so that comes at the cost of other things, right? So. The states have to find the money somewhere or have bigger debts. It's mm. got to get somewhere. It's got to be found somewhere. Um, now, in terms of the, the longer term impact, you know, what, what we see in Europe is, is hopefully something we, we can avoid, but we don't know that, where hospitals are yet again at, at, at breaking points. So we're not out of the woods yet. Now, can we avoid that in, in Australia? Potentially. I think there's some lessons learned to be learned from how the Europeans have, have dealt with it. I noticed, for example, in, in the Netherlands, um, they've only just started uh, the booster shot, only in the last week or so, even though, um, even though they were ahead of the curve. So they have, they've had lots of people who already were beyond the, uh, the, the six months, mm. uh, beyond the last uh, vaccination. The other thing is, of course, a lot of European countries sort of got stuck at the vaccination rate of around 80 to 85%. They got there much faster than us, than, than Australia, but then got stuck. Whereas here, we're now talking 90, potentially 95%. So we seem to have gone through that, uh, that barrier. So hopefully, with some careful management and, and, uh, and the correct settings, we, we can avoid what is happening uh, in Europe, where yet again, the, um, uh, the hospitals seem to be at, at breaking point. It's really interesting because it does seem as though vaccinations are not only such an important part of managing this, but they're also a fairly cost-effective way of managing mm. this because uh, I think that the total cost of vaccinations uh, as something that mitigates COVID really does um, seem so insubstantial compared to the continuing cost of keeping COVID wards operating, of, of PPE, of all of this yeah. sort of stuff. Absolutely. And, and just the cost of, um, beyond the health system, mm. the, co- the cost of social distancing as well, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, shutting down entire economies. In terms of uh, 
how we've seen the hospital system impacted. I mean, it does go beyond COVID. We've got people going in for all the usual ailments, for the for the hip replacement, for for the heart disease. How does the cost strain caused by COVID potentially impact on the quality of care we see in other for other um, ailments? Yeah, and this is this is becoming a, a, a big concern, uh, particularly people putting off their regular preventive type of care. Um, we've seen reductions uh, around the world, reductions in, for example, cancer screening and you know, people not being able to physically go to their GP so they might not get all the prescriptions that they need for their high blood pressure or, or et cetera. Now, we've, we've done well in terms of putting in place telehealth and consultations to try and overcome that, but we're still waiting on, on what, what the overall impact of all that uh, will be. Talking of telehealth, the other thing that really comes to mind during the past 18 months is mental health services. And we've really seen, you know, in Australia, there's been the additional COVID-10 extra sessions uh, for your mental health care plan, I believe, but also a a renewed focus on funding for mental health. In terms of how that funding works, what are the services that are being posited and provided by funding mental health? Yeah, so, so mental health is you know, one of the things we know that uh, associated with particularly the lockdowns and, of course, the economic effect that that has had, it has an impact on people's mental health status. And so uh, government has known that those uh, services needed to, to be supported. Now, we fund mental health in a huge, many different ways through, through public hospitals, through outpatient departments, through the Medicare benefits schedule. As you mentioned, you, you know, through a better health, uh, a mental health plan, you can get access to 10 and now 20 services. You can get access to, to telehealth services. So we have tried to adapt these things. But one thing I will say about mental health, which is a, a pre-existing, pre-COVID uh, condition, which is that it is, it is incredibly um, uncoordinated in the way that uh, the, the whole system, system works. What do you mean by that in terms of uncoordinated? Is it just a morass of saying this, 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 you're all mental health and, and go forth? Yeah, it's just, well, it's the way that the funding works. So there's a there's a bucket of money for this and a bucket of money for that and there's a bucket of money. But so you don't get a coordinated care across the whole um across the whole spectrum where your GP is involved with the psychologist who might be involved with, with some outreach services uh, or some other services like Beyond Blue, et cetera. It just happens to be, it's very sporadic in the tense where where you happen to live, what services are available and what you can get access to. Mm. Do you think though that's kind of an outlier in the health system? I mean, there's so much that we could consider when we think about health funding you know it's it, it ranges from gp visits to in home care to potentially uh getting a massage i you know <laughs> yeah. I, it, there's a real spectrum of what we yeah. could consider as health health related behaviors that are worthy of funding yeah no you're absolutely right for every basically every disease where and mental health is just one of those every disease where you are where you need to go from sector to sector so what i mean by that is from from primary care to acute care to hospital care to post-follow-up care. Every time a person travels through one of these systems and then add on top of that private and public, which is another level of discontinuity, every time a person has to go through that, 
they risk sort of dropping out of the system. And it is utterly confusing for any patient to know exactly where they have to go and for the, all the professionals involved in that care to know exactly what has gone on with, with that patient and what their role and, and responsibility is. So you're right, it's not just mental health, it's basically every disease, and there's lots of diseases out there that are like that now because we're sort of moving into this very complex people with many multi-comorbidities. They don't just have diabetes, but they have diabetes and heart failure and dementia, etc. And so every time you add another sort of level of, of, of healthcare need, you bring in another specialist, you need another part of the healthcare system, and the chances of providing a well-coordinated care um, diminishes in our system. I mean, as someone who's been working on patient personas, this must just be, you know, there are so many different variants to consider, so many different aspects where people uh, c- could be dealing with a multitude of different issues, a multitude mm. of comorbidities. Yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose that one of the things that, that we so desperately need with, with in terms of evidence is we need to know what it takes, What what is good care. And we kind of know what is good care when somebody has a heart attack. You know, somebody has a heart attack, there are really good standards, practice guidelines of what you should do. We know when somebody has comes into a GP office and has high blood pressure, we know what 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 to do. Mm. Where where the system sort of falls down is is what what does that look like over an entire patient journey, and what happens when that complexity. Uh, is increased, so it's not just uh, it's not just high blood pressure, but the person has multiple other other things. How how do we trade off all these different types of treatments that we need to need to put and put to the patient, uh, and and make sure that they have a safe uh, uh, safe experience of the healthcare system? Do you think going forward with the iconic project that there's room for potentially a patient persona of someone with COVID? Oh, that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it'd be be uh, quite easy to identify. The, the challenge is the challenge with iconic is you've got you've got twelve or eleven different countries and uh, eleven different data sets, mm. and somehow you've got to make them as comparable as possible. Mm. So, you know, finding the right person and the comparable person is, was the number one challenge. Mm. Um, but you know, we were able to do it. So the question is, can we identify a COVID person? And I think, I think we could. I think, you know, it depends on whether that COVID person went to a hospital. Um, if they went to a hospital, mm. the answer is yes. Mm. I think the other thing that um, during this COVID uh, era that's really become apparent is also burnout in terms of mm. how it affects medical professionals. And we're seeing more and more reports of doctors and health professionals not only in Australia, but internationally saying, well, look, I'm ready to step aside. I don't feel as yeah. though properly supported or just overwhelmed by the current health crisis. And I mean, very fairly, you could argue. In terms of the cost aspect of that, what what happens if we're seeing a healthcare system that you know is already dealing with the massive cost of dealing with a pandemic and then yeah. services become harder to find when there are less professionals available to perform them? Yeah, look, the, the system has been under under considerable pressure for well before COVID. We've seen sort of uh, more people wanting uh, um, greater flexibility in their work hours, uh, 
um, you know, reduced uh, from full time to, to part time. And so that's what was already in built, built into the system, which just creates, you know, more demand for healthcare workers. We've known that, you know, nurses, for example, there's you know, ever since I remember that there's been shortages of nurses. So these are well, you know, uh, these trends were well in place well before before COVID. And of course, it is incredibly costly to train someone in the healthcare system. It takes literally decades to to train a specialist uh, before they uh, before they come out on the other side after you know five years of medical school and then then practice, then specialization when they do their fellowships. Um, so not only is it incredibly expensive to train if you need someone, it's incredibly time consuming. It, you cannot just flick the switch mm. um, uh, instantaneously. You, you've got, I suppose you've got the migration tap that you can do and then Australia has, has, has done that to, to some extent. Um, but nevertheless, it, it remains an incredibly costly part of, of the healthcare system. And of course, it also, it goes back to sort of uh, also the quality of, of care in terms of being able to provide continuity. Mm. Um, it's one thing if you go and see your um, provider and you have a relationship with them and they know you, you know them. Um, that is, there is, there is merit in that. There is, there is absolute evidence that, that actually delivers a better quality. But the more, the more churn and change you've got to be able to, that you have in the healthcare system and more people involved in your care, then that means that you've also got to have the system in, in place that allows for multiple people to be involved in your care and still know and still know everything there is to know about you that that affects your your health, um, which increases the, the need to have systems in place like health plans and and, and digital records to, to to be able to in part compensate for that problem. Mm. But that adds initially adds more cost to 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 the whole system. I mean, it sounds as though the next few years in terms of healthcare are going to be extremely cost or debt intensive years going mm -hmm. forward as, as someone with your professional experience. Mm. Do you think that additional funding is just what we need to do to really pull our healthcare system through this additional funding in yeah. terms of services or, or, or is there something else? What, how do we make sure that our healthcare system stays as strong as possible to be ready for future challenges, future unexpected yeah. challenges like we've just yeah. gone through. Yeah, so so there, there's there is enormous amount of work dealing with preparedness. That sort of uh, how do you make your health system be able to cope with these shocks? Of course, the, the challenge is is to make that preparedness uh, be as as efficient as possible. You you know, once we go back to a hope, hopefully a relatively normal state of the world, we don't want to double the amount of money that we pump into the system when the system doesn't necessarily need it. We just need to find ways to actually allow the system to expand as necessary when, when it is needed. Um, and so there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done around how do we prepare the system and make the system flexible, but still do it efficiently without enormous wastes sitting in the system, sitting idle for when, just waiting for for the next next uh, pandemic. Next uh, so pandemic. that yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure people uh, after the Spanish flu, people would have had that conversation too. Mm. Um, <clears throat> um, <laughs> um, besides COVID, there have, there are some some trends in the in the system that we just as a society need to deal with, and it requires a public debate. We've 
we've been increasing the amount of money we spend on 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 healthcare um, for ever since I remember. <laughs> um, you know, only maybe 50, 50 years ago we were spending about two two three percent of of our GDP on healthcare. Now we're up to about 12 percent, and it will go up. It's it's not it's not going up, you know, by massive amounts every year, but it will go up. Now that's a reflection of a lot of things. Obviously, we're aging. Um, and as you age, you need more healthcare, and so that's that's part of the mix. But also, that's the technology. We we can do a lot more uh, for for people these days, and that technology costs typically costs. But it's also to do with expectations. You know, we we would like you know as as our incomes go up, we want to actually spend more on our on our health as a. So it's called a healthcare is called for some reason it's called a, a luxury good because as our incomes go up we tend to spend more on our our health that's true as a as, as on an individual level mm. but it's also true as a as a as a, as a nation in an aggregate uh, uh, level now that's there's nothing wrong with that but of course what, what we what we do want is we still want to have efficient care. Um, and that's why you need people like us. <laughs> you need health economists who try and look at what's the best way of allocating resources that get you maximum value for what you want to achieve. It's fascinating to think of healthcare as a luxury good, but and then as soon as you say it, it makes total sense. It is something where if you've got the 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 money to sort out certain you know yeah. uh, twitches, you know little things, of course you're going to use yeah. it in that way. That's exactly right. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're actually dealing with the really important stuff as well. Mm. You know, uh, we, we, we have the reason we have Medicare and the reason we have universal healthcare system is because we care about the fact that uh, we want to allocate healthcare not according to ability to pay, but according to healthcare needs. So mm. it doesn't matter what your income is, you should get have access to decent healthcare. That's all for today and for our 2021 season. Thank you to my guest, Keys Van Gool. You can catch the full show online and you can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to tell your friends and leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>